Deep Magic, Chapter 2, Deck Construction. Next, on Eternal Dirtles. Hello and welcome to Eternal Dirtles. I'm your host, Zach Clark, and with me as always, Phil Blackman. Phil, welcome to Boomer Magic Book Club. Bro, I love Boomer <laughs> Magic Book Club, though. I actually, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm ready to, to educate, ed, get educated. Yeah, let's, uh, so let's start off with the basics. Uh, this is the second video, so if you haven't seen the first video, um, it's totally not necessary to watch the, like, the first video, but, like, I think it'll, it'll do you a lot of good. That's recapping the basics. Uh, we'll have a link probably right here. Uh, there'll also be a playlist for it and everything, so you can watch the whole thing. Uh, if you, uh, want to check out the book, uh, you can check out, there is a Amazon link in the description below. Like I said, we're still trying to reach out to the writers of the book. That is George H. Baxter and Charles Wolf, uh, to try and get permission to do an audio book, uh, possibly a, uh, you, you know, like get, get a PDF going or something like that of the book. Uh, if you really need help, uh, finding the book, you can always join our discord and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll set you up. We'll figure out something for you. So, uh, anyhow, uh. Without any further ado, Phil, uh, Phil, chapter two, deck construction. It's, yeah, first off, it's a very easy read. So, yeah, this is like eight like, pages. So, yeah. Some of the stuff, some of the stuff is kind of, if it's, it, you can tell like some of the things are dated, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think we mentioned that last time, like some of the, the, the wording that they use is dated and stuff, but for the most part, a lot of the applications still apply. Uh, yeah. And w one thing that they, they say in, in different words is finding the legacy power level thing to do. Yeah, the, yeah, the, you know, definitely. The, the initial go if you want to he head right into the initial. The initial thing that they talk about is like what what is the goal of the deck? Well, and... I think before we go too far into that, uh, I, I wanted to bring up uh, the very first the very first thought uh, to me is like this is uh, this is basically the thesis of our sh of our show. Uh, the the very first two sentences. Uh, the process of deck construction is a fund is the fundamental skill in playing Magic. In order to be an effective Magic player you must be able to design and develop effective decks. I think that there, there is no two sentences that more clearly state our intentions with this, with this project and with the channel in, in and of itself. Yeah, and, and isolating that in varieties of different metas. I mean, the way that they talk about deck construction in this context is pretty much in a vacuum. Uh, yeah. I mean, of course, it's in a vacuum. Uh, and if it was uh, considering anything in day to day, there are some specific mentions to back to the card pool back in like fourth edition or something. Yeah. But uh, it, it it all still translates. It all still translates. Yeah. So uh, what were you saying about the the legacy power level thing to do? Uh, what what did that entail? Because I, so I, I I'm not sure the exact part that I was looking for that. Yeah, it it doesn't ex specifically say legacy power level thing yeah, to course. do, but it does it, it does iso it isolates specifically like when you're building your deck that your deck has a certain goal in mind, and so yes. when they're talking about like aggro decks in particular, they're like you know I mean in one of the lines they say if uh, an aggro deck uh, is typically constructed to win in the first ten rounds, <laughs> which I which I assume they mean ten turns, which is laughable by today's standards. Yes, but but the idea of th that line in particular as i was translating it to how i would how we would view it through today's lens is what is your deck optimized to do in the first two to three turns four yeah. turns so knowing going in when in your deck construction that if like if you are in in my role and you're playing you know a ponder brainstorm style cantrip control deck that like what are those cantrips likely suited to be doing in the early turns if you're not doing that if you're playing something uh a la combo you know your 
I want to sack my hex mage to create a dark depths on turn two. Like the deck is optimized to on turn two sack a hex mage to make a dark depths, uh, and that goes with any any of the the decks that you might construct. But knowing going in that when you are first coming up with a brew, that you should be able to logline effectively what your deck does. So, yeah. in, in Zach, you're the eight cast guy. I mean, the one thing that's fun too is like in thinking about a cast in my mind, it's like a cast turn one. I want to either play Urza saga or establish an Emery. Right. And if I'm not doing one of those two things, I feel like I would ship the hand. But now that you're in the space of also patchwork automatoning that I don't know how, how, how that differs in your deck building. If you would say, well, now I'm interested in three potential opening lines, which would keep a variety of different hands and the depths of different hands. And that changes how you would navigate uh, the rest of the game. But knowing that in, you know, all of those lines. So now you have two lines that are aggressive lines and one line that is fairly controlling line and being able to consider opening hands in those different varieties and then go, this is what my deck does. And then depending on a certain matchup, you can go, this is what my deck wants to do. And that is all contained in the, the, the very early games of magic as well in terms of high end deck construction. Yeah. I think one of the first things we want to do is talk about, they have this outline here and we'll, we'll post the outline yeah. up over here so you can look at it. But this is the whole chapter is basically just like going over this outline, the basically the checklist of like building a deck and deciding how to how to navigate that. And, and you know, it, which to me was amazing when I read this book when I was like 16. I was like, great. Now I have, you know, I didn't even have a lot of cards, but I had a, a sort of roadmap to figure out what I was going to be doing as far as like evaluating cards and building a deck from that. In fact, one of the things that I think that... um we we as older magic players that have sort of an exposed disposable income uh take for granted is the fact that as a as a 16 year old i got 10 dollars every two weeks to play to like buy magic cards and of course i spent all 10 of that dollars on like fallen empires packs you know like sure. or or you know what have you um and i had to find creative ways to solve problems uh that i couldn't do with uh you know with with money you know i'd have to be like okay well you know other people have Earnum gins or they have doppelgangers and stuff like how do i how do i compete with that at my local meta and we weren't even playing tournaments we were just like playing pickup games uh, on sunday at the local comic shop so like you know a lot less was at stake but at the same time a lot more uh, a lot more thinking was involved on my end as a kid than it is now as an mm -hmm. adult because like the deck lists are there like you know like you can but there's a funny part in this that where they're talking about like rebuilding a mana base and building a mana base and like figuring out everything. And part of that's very important now, but there's a lot less brewing that happens on the, uh, on the granular level because so much is built out for us over the last 30 years, you know? Um, so I think, I think one of the things that to me that like, I, I realized like as a, as a player, I had to I had to buy, I had to build cheap decks, right? So mm -hmm. I had a deck that was really good during the like Weatherlight Tempest era that was uh Cloud Spirits, Thalicos Scouts, like Merfolk Looters, basically like shadow low drop shadow creatures and flyers that weren't very effective blockers. And then I would boomerang my opponent's stuff and counterspell where, where I could. I basically built a tempo deck well before tempo was really a thing. And I had ways to like, okay, you're going to target my Thalco scout. I'll pitch a card basically to counter it, to return it to my hand and, ca and cast it again. Right. So it's funny that uh, what, what this brought to me as, as a magic player uh, when my resources were as limited as they were. 
Yeah, and back then there also wasn't just all of the information available to you as well. So yeah, even I mean, if you had the money, and not the internet. Yeah, right? even, even even if you did have the coin to get whatever cards you want, you may not necessarily have known what cards or how many of how many copies of those cards to get in order to or maximize that they existed or you know, how to get them because you know yeah. like TCG player didn't exist. You had to go to a shop and trade, and if the local didn't have the cards you needed, like eBay was a coin flip back in the day. Like you didn't know, mm -hmm. like eBay, eBay was like, and if eBay didn't even really become a, a source for getting magic cards until like, I want to say like 98, 99. And we were still very yeah. wary of it at the time. Um, and the, the, yeah, there just wasn't the straight up data horse that Moto provides as well. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I think when you, when you were talking about how uh, the, the, you said something about brewing doesn't happen or, or the development doesn't happen as, uh, fluidly as it did back then, or I, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. uh, you, what well, you had mentioned like before about the pure focus of the game. Like, you know, we, we, right, we right. Yeah, have yeah, yeah. deck lists, you know, it, this it, book had deck lists. That was it. You know, it was, it was, it was much more slow moving. And I think that a lot of the times now, rather than a brand new archetype popping up, it's adaptations of archetypes. So for example, like when new cards come in, like we've been talking about recently about how eight cast has sort of adopted patchwork automaton as a way to like add a different angle. And so they've dropped the number of size and number of Kappa cannoneers in order to have a more aggressive early slant. Yeah. Um, and that also helps pressure the fact that Bowmaster is a house in the format now. And then similarly, we've seen the more four color decks adopting the halfling legendary package and are moving away from stuff like Narset and stuff like endurance because it doesn't, uh, the endurances don't necessarily work with the halflings and there isn't as much graveyard uh, centric focused uh, archetypes like there used to be. I mean, reanimator is still a thing, but there isn't like Hogak in the format as much anymore, um, which, you know, come to think of it, maybe Hogak is prime for a comeback, but the, the, the aspects of deck building now are more so I feel like evolutions of archetypes as opposed to brand new archetypes coming in and shocking the world. You know, yeah. gone are the days of Kaibud being able to I mean, illusions donate to the last a, time a, that happened. In, the last time that happened in Legacy was was eight cast, I think. Like the last time we were really truly surprised by a brand new build of a deck, you know, was was eight cast, which wasn't that long ago. That was like two years ago, you know. Um, and that was also because happen or, 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 it doesn't have a constant thing. That was also because Modern Horizons just like overhauled a bunch of the world and nobody thought that i mean when it was first spoiled everybody knew that like urza saga looked powerful but nobody really quite understood how powerful i i think that like yeah that's a, a particular scenario where it's not often that the pillars of the format just shift and yeah. then you know before ancient tomb was a pillar but not in the same way that urza saga has become a pillar yeah all well, on its own, you know. I think also, uh, you know, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds for eight cast, but I think it was the first time that we saw getting double value out of a out of a saga, like the concept that like this saga taps to do an effect, uh, and then getting that value out of it twice. We just didn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was. There was no metric for that. There's no heuristic for that. So uh, I, I don't think we really realized until until people started realizing. Right. There's um, that, but, and then there's there's also like we didn't have the heuristic yet of what the Urza Saga package looks like. Yeah. Like that's that's something that when talking about deck construction in the in in the book that where they they talk about like uh, essentially what the what your deck does and like what it wants to do, what its access for like adjustments are to be made. Whereas like nowadays also we look at cards and we think of them as packages, right? We like when you're playing Urza Saga, you're thinking okay, there's also a slew of you know. Uh, what four to seven one drops that are considerable as main deck 
Tudor targets for your Urza Saga. You know, it's interesting that you brought that up because when we think of those packages, we also think of packages that we immediately remove from deck construction as well, right? If we're playing Urza Saga, we're probably not playing Brainstorm, Ponder, Days, uh, etc. You know, like, so those cards move away because we're trying to do a completely different different thing, maybe in the same colors, but like, we generally take those card, those packages away and so that's a we- that's an interesting way to to think about deck construction as as a series of packages that are like ready to go. Like I'm not going to play. Uh, I I want to turn one an Urza Saga so I can turn to a construct. Right. That mm-hmm. that means that I'm probably not going to play uh, a Delver Secrets in my deck. Right. Like that doesn't make any sense. And and because of I'm playing colorless and I'm play like that moves me into Ancient Tomb. That means I'm probably playing Chalice. So there go all of the one drop uh, cantrips and stuff like that. So that's. It's an interesting way to think about that, actually. And it's typical because, like, I mean, you, you, what you just mentioned, how those things bleed together, right? So if you have, an like, if Ancient Tomb is in your deck and you're not combo, it is presumed that the Ancient Tomb is paired with a Chalice of the Void. Because yeah. for so long, Ancient Tomb Chalice was just a pillar of the format. Yeah. Now, that has, like, sort of skewed more, I think, towards, you know, if somebody says Ancient Tomb, in my head, they're much more likely to be on Urza Saga. And usually yeah. it's going to be a combination of both. But, like, in my in my mind, Urza Saga is going to be the 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 first and foremost thing that pairs along with it because of the power level and, you know, the fact that it can also be uh, put in a bunch of combo decks that don't necessarily play Chalice like Painter and things like that, where Urza Saga is still really powerful. There's also some control decks that play uh, Urza Saga without Ancient Tomb, though it is, if I were to say, hey, I'm going to play an Urza, a, a blue Urza Saga deck that's not combo, I'm going to play Jeskai Urza Saga, you can also deduce from that, likely, that it means that my Urza Sagas are not going to be as powerful as the 8-cast players' Urza Sagas. Yes. You know? So it's like, you just know offhand from the, the, that context that my Sagas are likely going to be 3-3s, three maybe 4-4s, four as opposed to 8-8s eight and 9-9s. Nine yeah. And then, therefore, the way that those games then naturally play out are also different. And that is also, there, there's information to be gleaned from that, off of very little information. And then the types of cards, like if I say I'm playing Jeskai Urza Saga, or if I play a Saga deck, and you also see that I'm playing Brainstorm, you're like, okay, well, you can also probably deduce that in my package of Urza Saga targets, I will have, what, the the stuff that's more interactive. I'm going to have the Soul Guide Lantern in the main. I'm going yeah. to have a Pithing Needle in the main. I'm going to have these things that would be answers for stuff that otherwise I wouldn't have access to, where on something that you might do with, Ur- with Urza Saga, you might be like, I just want the Aether Spellbomb as a removal spell. I just want the Shadow Spear as a way to get through, and that's it. And then any other targets that I have are going to be in the board. Otherwise, yeah. like if I want to grind, maybe I have the retrofitted foundry in the board as well. Stuff like that. But like, you know, it's like you can also adjust the package accordingly. Similar to like Stoneforge Mystic. If I'm playing a controlling Stoneforge Mystic deck, maybe I'm going to lean harder on a Batterskull or a Gite as opposed to like DNT that might want to just keep the aggression going and search up the cauldron immediately. And so if I see my opponent go turn one vile and then they put in uh so if if i see turn one vile i'm way more likely to think that cauldra is going to be in my future as opposed to batterskull yeah et cetera, et cetera, you know what i mean yeah so let's let's get into the 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 roman numeral uh i uh roman numeral one uh devising a driving idea for your deck right like so the first thing they say is this concept has a great deal to do with uh the philosophy of deck construction uh you wish to employ something we talk about here all the time uh and then they they fall into the three categories uh the uh, aggressive category, the reactive category, and the denial category, and, and and you know I've I've done a lot of highlighting, but we don't have to really go too far into that to to realize that there are uh, there are you know the, those categories exist in legacy, of course, uh, and then I think the important uh, the important part of the the uh, Roman numeral I, the Roman numeral one uh, section, 
is uh, the last line of the last paragraph here is, is that it is not uncommon for these philosophies to be intermingled. Most decks function as a mixture to two, uh, two of the three. Uh, in some cases, if you're Delver, uh, Delver is actually all three of those. It's a fast creature deck with the Nile and uh, and uh, it, it is reactive, right? Like, so it, it's funny how these these concepts actually do sort of translate over uh, thirty years after the fact, you know. Now, and also, I think that the if you aren't at least a com- some combination of those, even in today's standards, right? Like, if you are not some combination of those. What those combinations mean in in my mind in modern day terms is it it means what, can your deck pivot? Can you yeah. choose to be the beatdown if you if you want to, or can you play the controlling role if you need to, et cetera, et cetera? So like uh, in in the world of uh, people who are like me who are you know tundra control mages for life, if you know I, I fall into the trap a lot where I'm like I just want to you know fucking play you know Gaia's blessing control where I just go infinite and never die, yeah. right? But at the cost of that, it means that if if I am don't have access to pivot to like start turning the corner and get aggressive on my opponent, and my opponent knows that, then there's a lot of luxury for them to be gained of like okay, I can I can either slow roll my play or I can take advantage of the fact that my opponent's going to give me a lot of time because I know that they don't have the access to pivot. Pivot. Whereas like Delver being a top deck for so long is because it's it's adaptable. You know, yeah. it can play the control role when it needs to. It can board in and be a fast, aggressive deck when it needs to. And in the interim where it can do that mid-game if it needs to. And the same thing with Urza, um, Urza, with Acast. Similarly, like a lot of the top decks prove that they can play multiple roles. You can just stick a chalice and then use all of your resources to protect that chalice to blank a bunch of your opponent's cards and stay ahead of, uh, stay ahead of them before you decide to beat them down. Or you can just play a fast saga, beat them down really quickly, and never let them deploy all of their resources. Yeah. So. The decks that have access of being able to do all of those things is really important in today's standards. Similar, like if you have um, combo control decks, you know, it's like they can play the control role, but incidentally, they can also combo you out. Think of things like Breakfast, right? Like Breakfast has an Urza Saga package. They can play a beatdown role if they need to, but also they have the auto I win button naturally baked in. And you have to, your your behavior when you're playing against those decks has to respect those opportunities that those decks present. You know what I mean? I think one of the interesting parts of, of all of this stuff is when we get into the second type, of strategy and they talk about the idea of versatility and the reactionary deck um mm-hmm. and, and the fact that it says like for both for both this and the resource denial deck is that uh th- and this philosophy like the reaction philosophy is typically relying upon a secondary ch- uh, theme to achieve victory right you don't play miracles because uh because uh like entreat the angels is what you're trying to do as a deck like it's the deck is called Miracles, but you're not like, boom, I'm just trying to get out and treat the angels as fast as possible, right? Your deck is a reactive deck that, as, as Miracles, right? That The real Miracle card in your deck is obviously uh, Terminus. And then you have uh, St. Catherine. You have Entreat the Angels, right? But those are really secondary to what you, what you set out to do initially, which is stop your opponent from being able to maximize against you and, and, then, and then stabilize. Once you've and done I- that... Then, then you're going to be doing your secondary strategy, which is, oh, look at all the angels I have. Yeah, I think that part of uh, a part of that, and this is a good example of like when Triumph of Saint Catherine was spoiled. I was, everybody was like, how good is this? Like, it may be good, it may not be good. Everybody knew that, like, okay, yeah, if you miracle for two, it's a five-five life linker. Obviously, that's a good rate, right? But I, I knew immediately out the gate, I was like, this will be a game changer, right now. It's still a five-five vanilla creature if the life link if the life link doesn't matter, right? So it's not like overhauling the world or anything. But 
what the card does do is it allows you to in in your control deck take a proactive slant which let you do what we were just talking about of being able to go aggressive on your opponent when you need to yeah. and that opens up a whole paradigm of uh of the game that was effectively not really available to a control deck like miracles before outside of something like monastery mentor so in 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 my head when you were like yeah the 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 thing that you're trying to do is terminus nowadays when even though you're playing reactive there's there's a proactivity to being reactive in my head which is why i have such a hard time ever getting away from counterbalance because in my mind the way that i navigate a counterbalance deck is it is my way to proactively proactively establish some kind of control on the table that my opponent then has to behave around which you know similar to terminus like they have to think if they know that i have terminus they can't just you know swarm the board and then assume that 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 is going to be good enough because i'm going to clean them up so they have to respect something that i have available to me which in the same way that i think of proactively it's like they they have to respect terminus but if they don't i can proactively slam a counterbalance which is usually why those things feel like they go hand in hand yeah because naturally when you're playing those out you as the pilot get to be proactive regardless of what your opponent's doing yeah. yeah. So uh, I think I think that leads us in really well to uh, the second Roman numeral, uh, Roman numeral two, II, as it were. Uh, specify other cards that work well with this idea, which, like Geist of Saint Catherine, is a perfect example of cards that you ha- cards that you looked at and were like, this works well with what I'm trying to do. It keeps me alive. It also kills my opponent, and like it, you know, it can even be a removal spell in a pinch if you're miracling it off of a brainstorm or something like that. But I think the the real sentence that I, that I, I think drives this whole point home is analyze what will be some obvious difficulties and how to overcome them. And that is what I mean. That's basically like a pinpoint of what uh, Geist of Saint Catherine uh, does for your deck. I think that there's that that particular uh, section. It, it's fairly broad, and uh, in the context of something like Triumph. Uh, what that really enlightened or, or really helped me specify as to like where they're t- what they're talking about and how to apply it to like modern day stuff is in the in, in regards to Triumph of St. Catherine compared to something like Terminus have obviously brainstorm is the best way to enable a miracle right because it's an instant speed card draw that you would otherwise already want in your deck and being able to Terminus at instant speed is is fantastic obviously that you know one of the strengths of Sensei's Divining Tap when it was around but similarly now with Triumph of St. Catherine one of the biggest aspects of making of optimizing that card is being able to catch somebody in combat miracling it in combat and then being able to block that is something that you didn't need for Terminus. Sometimes you would get it off with Entreat, but it's a little bit less so. Entreat usually was overwhelming an opponent, whereas Triumph is unlikely to overwhelm an opponent. But if you can get them in the position where you can Miracle at instant speed, so in the line that where you said, you know, analyzing what cards go well with it, in all of the testing that I've done with Triumph, I have found that Triumph makes all of the instant speed cantrips that otherwise aren't good enough to see play, opt, consider, anything at instant speed, any literal instant speed cantrip, is elevated so much more because of the access to Triumph of St. Catherine that if your opponent, if you cast, let's say you attack me, right? You're attacking me with, uh, uh, with a construct, uh, with, you know, whatever your construct is. And I instance, I just play opt, right? And you have any thought that I'd like, I may know the top of my deck or uh, like, this is a weird time to cast opt. Like you may have to think a lot harder about this otherwise really low powered card and fighting over it or knowing that a fight is about to happen and yeah. you go, okay, well, I have force negation in my hand. 
do I need to like tap out right now and fight fight over this because I'm not going to be able to fight over a triumph? Like this feels weird to be fighting over this kind of cantrip, yeah. but I have to respect it more. Especially because if I know I'm attacking about... with a four four, you know, like then I just get you know, blown yeah. out. You know, like like context is everything, of course. But like the the idea of like you know analyzing which cards would go better. Like I have played a bunch of opt and consider before as like you know just testing for a more instant speed version of miracles, mm -hmm. but like triumph really changes that paradigm because of how much more powerful it yeah. is in combat and uh th this one section of like this section really reminded me of abc deck building in a lot of ways yeah, exactly uh you know it, it's like you of course everybody understands like yeah this, you, you always this. are looking for yeah yeah you're looking for synergies like of course but the it, focusing on on this thing really highlighted for me now is like not only is an ABC deck building you're going, yes, this works with this, this works with this, of course, you know, this, therefore this, but also more so is what is the most powerful play pattern that your A is involved in? And then how can you maximize specifically that play pattern to find out what the strength of your B and C are? Yeah. So Triumph is great if you miracle it, right? Of course. But it's really, really good if you can miracle it in combat and trade and, and catch the creature on the block and then untap and attack again. Like that's really where your swings come in. And so in that regard, uh, ponder or portent isn't like like portent. You can get the miracle on your opponent's turn, but you're not going to catch them in combat because you have to catch it in their upkeep. Yeah. Where it's like if you can somehow set it up uh, your miracle and then do it in mid combat where you're really going to catch them. That really is where the power level of something like Triumph is is. That can, I mean, uh, that can basically be a 20 point life swing. That's the, the damage you didn't take and the life you gained, then uh, untapping and then gaining five and dealing five. That's, that's like, a, you know, in a great scenario, that's a 20 point life swing off of one, off of one, two magic cards, technically, because you had used the draw spell. But still, like, it's also the, it's also, wow. it's also the implied value, right? The implied value is like, okay, something like a, an opt or consider or any other instant speed cantrip. You know, I've even tried things like um, uh, illusion of choice. Which is just a liter literally is an instant speed one mana spell that says you get uh, you choose how your opponent votes or something like that. Or uh, and I remember thinking like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll like incidentally try and pair this with like a council's judgment. So council's judgment on four There's mana can things. turn into like yeah. can you know vindicate two things um, as a way to test like okay, well first I want to try instant speed cantrips because I want it for triumph, but then therefore if that's going to be what I'm going to do, then I also want council judgment, which I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. But the idea is like, okay, well, your one mana cantrip that may or may not level up this other spell that isn't very good is pretty underwhelming. However, the uh, the perceived advantage that it's also uh, generating is, well, if this miracles my triumph in combat, then it's also like a removal spell. So it's an enabler that's also theoretically turning into a removal spell. And if I look at this cantrip, through the lens of, okay, this draws me a card and removes a creature, then it's really good, right? Now, of course, there's setup involved in that, but if you're thinking, like, what is the ideal scenario that I can set up? What's my deck maximized to do? And if it's maximized to one mana cantrip, remove your creature, gain X life, that's actually really solid, right? Like, right. it's way more attractive than a one mana cantrip that doesn't do anything. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think we drove that point home. Uh, hey, while we have everybody's attention, if you're enjoying this uh, series, the podcast itself, you know, comment, subscribe, like all that stuff that always helps. Uh, now let's move on to uh, Roman numeral three. Uh, that is record the deck. And I, I want to real quick give a shout out to Moxfield. There's a quick Moxfield ad coming up. Eternal Dirtles is proud to be sponsored by Moxfield. Moxfield is the best Magic the Gathering deck building website on the internet. You can create, share, and find decks from Commander to Legacy and even fan supported formats like Premodern and Old School. You can see all of our decks on our Moxfield. Follow the links below to stay tuned. And like I said, so uh, 
you know, recording your deck. Like we already do that all the time on Moxfield, you know. Uh, but uh, I think I think that at this time, no one was really, you know, like no one was really writing down their deck and making notes mm-hmm. and changes and stuff. So it was a really important piece of the piece of the puzzle. And I don't want to harp too far on it because there's another similar ch- like part coming up. So I just wanted to like, you know, we do that. Like I said, we do that with Moxfield and um, and it allows us to basically uh make changes and stuff like that in, in a way that's that's kind of relevant so let's move on to uh oh, I, just, I just want to point out on that on that particular topic because it was sort of serendipitous that we were going to be covering this chapter and then and and how it came to fruition you know i mean of course like this is something that's ongoing uh in you, you know usually the communities for certain architects but um uh, fr- friend of the pod marcus who's a, a good europe an excellent european player he's known for like high tiding a bunch of various uh, just guy control decks and blue white x decks and uh routinely in the miracles chat and you know in chats uh, with just him and i where we're, we'll talk about different deck ideas we'll send each other deck lists we'll like talk about like what are our problems what are we trying to solve like what are different areas that we're try- trying to figure out and when we record the deck list and part of figuring out those things out is like you know using your community and the resources that you have at hand to get, help you solve the problems with a deck list that you may otherwise not fully understand even if solutions are seemingly obvious right yeah. so an example was he sent me a deck list that is a blue white x urza saga deck and uh he had a particular problem where he was like I, i'm looking for you know this sort of thing to help stabilize and he was playing urza saga but he didn't he didn't have shadow spear in the main and i said well i think you can condense some number of your slots by having access to shadow spear to turn on your constructs to help stabilize a board and then that would give you you know something else and then but we were talking about it not as like the way that eight cast would talk about it which is i want to be able to push damage or uh you know steal games from delver it was a different context that we were looking at the lens of shadow spear in but if you were to look at a deck list and didn't know the play pattern is different here of how we want to optimize the shadow spear for the goal versus seeing urza saga plus shadow spear in every other deck list you ever see you may not recognize that it's like no the idea of the shadow spear in this deck is for these solutions and so when you when you're looking to solve that problem in game you go oh this is what this is in the deck for as opposed to if you were to play in a different context it's in a different context so like being able to record your deck list isolate why every part of your deck is there like what's the purpose of every card and then being able to discuss that with your community of people who are helping you out that's where recording your deck list is really helpful because then you can you can actually like list out these cards are for this these cards are for this this card is specifically for this this card is specific for this in the ideal scenario yeah and then if if something is missing or something is stunted or something's not working then you go okay well then we can switch up numbers because it's not solving the role that it needs to solve you know not not to not to point out that we live in like a golden age of magic the gathering content where like you can consume just so much magic the gathering content and like i said when i was in high school it was this i had this and duelist and inquest and scry and that was kind of it the idea that the internet exists in such a way now where like i could spend the entire day talking to my friends about magic and i have to call them on the phone or like mm-hmm. wait until study hall you know like uh you know like we can we can discuss magic constantly and uh it was something that as you know as a 15 16 year old uh you know like i had to call up my friend paul and we would do we would play games of magic with each other on the phone you know, mm-hmm. no webcam or anything like that. We would just explain our board state constantly uh, to each other. And this is like, you know, at a time when like, you know, if somebody else was trying to call my house, the busy signal would happen. You know, we would spend hours talking about magic cards. Uh, and now we do that 
all all on the internet, all through Discord. Join our Discord, obviously. The link's below for that. But, like, think about that. Like, it's just wild how much more, uh, how, how much the internet has, like, just ex- exacerbated the amount of magic content that we can get a hold of. Dude, it, you're you're making me think. I recently saw. I mean, it, it keeps going back to the episode where we were talking about how you how like learning from chess and applying it to uh, magic and vice versa, and uh, you know how to analyze things. And I, I was watching. I saw a video of Magnus Carlsen, number one chess player in the world, and uh, essentially he was playing a game of mental chess. Right? They didn't have a board in front of them. They were just playing a game, He's yelling out, saying, yeah. saying moves to each other and talking through the moves in a similar way where you might, you know, explain a board state and then be like, "I was thinking about this. I was thinking about that," and we understand what you're talking about. But like, the, literally, his opponent was like, "Yeah, well, what do you think about something like, you know, in this position, you go HG three or King H three, which is just a move on the board," and, he, and then Magnus goes, "Yeah, but what's your idea?" Okay, night G six. Then what do you do? You know, and they're, they're, they don't have yeah. a board in front of them. They're just talking through. And I the could line never. Like, I, I couldn't. You know, I eventually, if I learned how to play chess better, I could, I, I suppose, do that. But it's it's wild to the layman uh, watching, like how how flo- like fluidly that that all happens. But that's at the same time, that's something that we do in Magic, right? Yeah. Like. I, you you can explain you can just go yeah so I, I'm going uh, saga one ancient tomb on two because I want to be able to uh, put out pump out two sagas and then get this uh, and then get a shadow spear but if I do that then if I play a land if it's not a soul land then I can't actually equip it that same turn which means that I'm exposing my shadow spear up to a prismatic ending on the following turn and then I may not be actually be converting the life gain that I want to offset my Urza you know it's like yeah. To offset the ancient tomb, ancient tomb. life loss because yeah. I know the game. It's like you, we can talk through all those patterns without actually having this stuff in front of us and know what we're talking about, and then go, yeah. So actually, you shouldn't get the the, the shadow spear first in this matchup. You should get you know whatever because you're going to be able to maximize your mana faster. But like if you do Urza Saga on turn two, then that opens up a whole bunch of extra lines that will convert an additional four damage, and that four damage means something because if they go X, you know, it's like all of this comes to fruition without really much. We just know the play patterns. Yeah, we of just those know. Things. Yeah, but like. But like in in that position where you're you're going okay if I go Urza Saga on one in the dark like ideally I want to get an action spell and that action spell is going to be what well if you get Shadow Spear and you're not in combat and you're not going to be able to leverage the equip then maybe that's not the best option and I want an additional proactive uh, spell to get that will maximize my mana a little bit better whatever that you know I don't know what the, that would look like but you know what I'm talking about and then we can get in those positions where you're like I really find that like I get a Mox Opal more often than not but then it's not often that I need the additional mana source because I'm on a more aggressive slant and I notice that I'm wasting mana every turn and it could be optimized a little bit better, right? Yeah. Look, okay, well, what does that slot look like? Is it, you know, and then when we look at new spoilers, we're like, does that mean that you want candy trail? Like is candy trail as a one of actually really good because then you can get it, you get the ETB value, set up your draw step for the next turn. And then like, that's actually the most optimal play. Like who knows, but that's sort of where you get from understanding those play patterns of what your deck's trying to do early. And that's what this chapter sort of encapsulates. Phil, indulge me for a moment while I while I uh, partake in an anecdote. Uh, yeah. So at the dog park, uh, I take Brandon to the dog park all the time, and there's another dude there that play that plays magic. Uh, and so occasionally he and I will just like get into like a the zone, BSing about magic. Uh, and he doesn't he plays like draft and commander and stuff. So like we don't really get too far in the weeds about legacy. But uh, a really great a really great story that kind of uh, helps people kind of understand like how wild it is that we can just talk about this stuff uh you know off the cuff was uh i went in one day and i saw i saw this woman that i that i know and my my buddy was there on the side and i like waved hi to him but she was some other woman was yelling at her because her dog was like being aggressive or whatever she just left the dog park and you know basically what it came down to was like her dog was telling that dog to like 
please leave me the F alone. I'm playing with my toy and I don't want to deal with this other dog. It all came down to this. There was one really aggressive lady in the dog park just being mean to people. Saturday dog park people, if you have a dog, you know what I mean. Like, come on. Uh, but so, so this woman is just like, ah, oh, you know, and it's like her, her husband, and her friend. Like, you bring three people to the dog park to watch your one dog. Like, what are you doing? Anyhow, this woman, uh, I'm, I'm, I walk in and I'm immediately fed up. I'm the kind of person that, like, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna say something if you're being a jerk, especially in the dog park where like living beings exist and need to be, you know, like there, some policing needs to be done. So, uh, you know, after this woman, she left, you know, when I walked over to this lady, I was like, hey, as a heads up, like, you're in the wrong here. I hope you know that. Like, you know, the, her dog was being clearly vocal to your dog about what that what boundaries to set. And you didn't help that situation out by removing your dog from the situation. That's all you had to do. Your dog's trying to get a toy from this other dog. And like, you know, whatever. Like, And she was like, well, that's just your opinion. And I was like, hey, you know what? And I'm sharing it with you. You know, like, and I could see like her husband and her friend were just like, uh, she does mm -hmm. this all the time. You know, and I say all that to say this. I removed myself from the situation after that. I said my piece and my wife is like watching a loaf of bread that we had just bought. And I go over to talk with my buddy who I play magic with, right? And we're chit-chatting. And I think this is about right before Ragavan got banned in Legacy. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about that. And he's like, oh, Ragavan's so good. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's going to get banned, blah, blah. But I could tell that this lady was listening in on the conversation. And she thought I was trying to ban her from the dog park, right? So she's like, you know, she's like, well, I could hear, the, you know, like her husband's like, come on, let's go. You know, she's like, well, I'm not leaving until he leaves. And it's just funny to like the way people like the layman hears what we say to each other. We're talking in a completely different language. Right. Uh, so, like I said, uh, allow me to partake in, in a bit of an anecdote to kind of set that straight is a little funny, uh, a funny uh, situation. But uh, so now let's go on to the fourth, uh, the fourth pip, uh, the fourth Roman numeral. Uh, perform analysis. And this has a few different things. We've got A, B, uh, what? Oh, just A, B, and C, right? A is calculate your man distribution. B is calculate removal capability and importance of removal. And C is calculate effectiveness versus the five basic decks. Let's work backwards from that. Uh, first off, what they're telling you, again, I said this before, make a battle box, right? They're telling you make a battle box. Figure out what are the primary decks that you need to be playing against that you see as, as often as you do and see if your brew pairs up against these decks well. What do you consider the pillars of the format? That you're, if, yeah. you're going into, if you're going to go into Eternal Weekend in December and you should know these decks are likely to show up in the room in sufficient numbers that you have to be prepared for them. And if you don't have a plan for those pillars, then you are likely going to either struggle against them or not know how to navigate the that against them and then that will cost you in a tournament where two losses means you're out of the you know anything more than two losses means you're out of top eight right so it's like the 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 room for error is very thin so preparation means a lot and a lot of what this section of of uh perform analysis to, by today's standards they mean play testing but i think that the way that it sort of pulled back the curtain for me a little bit further was like you know really think of yourself as a scientist you know, even with something established, like, you know, the science is never solved, right? Like the, the science is the best that we know right now. And there, and we make uh, informed decisions based off of the most uh, recent and uh, confirmed research that we have. But like, that doesn't mean that anything is ever like locked in unless there's a position stand that some, that shows something that is empirically true. 
but in magic, nothing is empirically true, right? Like you you never have, you never are like, I have the best 75. This is the actual empirically optimized 75, 100%. Like there's no way to be even, able to even actually- if it's just the optimized 75 for you, it might not be the optimized 75 for your, like against your opponent, you know? Like it's, well, there's it's, so it's, many it's, factors to take, there's so many random factors to take into account on that. It's all contextual. And so like the idea that you can be, the, the, the idea of thinking to yourself, okay, I put yourself in the role of the scientist and your, your goal is to find the best 75 or the best uh, 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 95 in, in terms of you 80 card sickos. Uh, <laughs> That, that like you go in and same thing like when the, that like that conversation that I was having with Marcus o o over our chat like you go in with a hypothesis right you're like okay here's the the, hypo the pro you have a problem and your hypothesis to solve that problem is these things these cards in these numbers and the the theory is that you know if I add shadow spirits to the deck I will improve my percentage against these specific uh, aggro decks by these numbers and then you test it and in that testing if you can't actually assign the if you're not seeing the results of your hypothesis if you're seeing something entirely different that's going to inform your next hypothesis to then evolve your research to evolve your play testing and i know that we've talked about that before but like really look like examining it through the lens as like you have a, you are a scientist with a hypothesis that's trying to experiment and then your experiment will give you data that will then inform your your future hypothesis to continue iterating on a deck list you know, continuing your research and your research is never done, you know, like you will do as much as you can getting up to eternal weekend for the most optimized 75 that you can based on the research that you did, knowing that afterwards you might have recognized, like I have a whole new set of hypotheses based on this event. That's going to inform my decisions going forward with the, the evolution of this deck. And the more minds that you have on it, the better optimized your deck is likely to be. There are so many, there's so much data on Delver that you are likely, you are more likely to have the better 75, the more optimized 75 than you are with your brew going at it by yourself, yeah. right? The same thing that like in the research world, if you're a scientist, if you're going at it alone on your own dime, that's going to take a lot longer than if you have all of the resources and minds all over the world sharing as much information as they can to improve and skip over a lot of stuff that you would have to struggle through on your own. So I want to in, in this way. Yeah, go. I want to piggyback off of that because uh, you know, I, I, I like I said, I like to go back to where my mind was at when I got this book and 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 the what I was dealing with as far as like these these concepts and what that concept meant to me is I had to, uh, you know, with an Uno deck because I didn't have proxies, I would mm. build the other deck right, and then I would play like as though I was a person who didn't know it was in the other person's hand against each other. Because when I went to Ohio every summer, which was like peak time to learn to play magic, you know, like you have off of school, you know, uh, I would go to Ohio and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have access to any of my friends for like a month. So I would have to like, be like, okay, like co confessions of a necro deck player. I played like, you know, contagion era necro, necro. Uh, and I would, I would build like, okay, now I'll play a blue control deck, but I would play, I would like build it with Uno cards and like write on the Uno cards in Sharpie, like what I'm, what this deck is. And then like under that, I would have like what, uh, th what another card was that would be in another deck. And I'd literally just bash these into each other alone, you know, or like, you know, I was at my aunt Steli's house. So my aunt Steli, like my great aunt. So she was like in her late nineties would just be staring at me thinking I was doing like witchcraft with like magic cards, and Uno cards together. We are doing witchcraft. Yeah, yeah. we are. Uh, but so what's what's wild is that so you take that concept uh, th there's a small amount of self-discipline that you have to uh achieve to to play not play favorites when you're doing that sort of testing 
And so when I later on, I think I've told you about this, there was a book called Play Poker Like the Pros by Phil Hellmuth, where again, I traveled to another place where I didn't have a lot of friends, but I wanted to learn how to play poker. So I, what I did is I, there's this part of the book where they teach you about the animals of the game. You have mm-hmm. the mouse who only plays the top 10 hands, the elephant who always sees the flop, the hyena who plays weird stuff, and then you, right? And so I would create games of poker that where I would have to evaluate blind against each of these things and see what they had. So like, it's, it's wild how, again, how effective the internet is in making it so that you can learn the game much more effectively and easy uh, versus, you know, trying to play the game by yourself. I, I you, you just reminded me too of one thing when I was reading this chapter, when thinking through, you know, the aspects that we've talked about, about, uh, you know, community looking through building battle box, et cetera, et cetera, that I think that there was a disservice, there's a disservice that has been done over the long haul of the game's trajectory versus information availability in the olden days versus information availability now. And what I mean by that is we've all heard the stories of the person showing up to an event with their super secret tech and fucking crushing everybody, right? Like, oh my God, nobody saw this coming. How it, it, absolute genius. We've never seen it before. It's unbelievable. They, 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 they took down the, the event and it, it just immense genius. How could anybody yeah. think about this? And I think now, nowadays, I don't think something like that is reasonable for success. It's much rare. It happens in lim- more limited card pools. Like and, you can do it in standard, yeah, yeah. you know? I, I think that like the the world now, so much of uh, so much of your deck preparation is also preparation of understanding what the metagame looks like at the time. Yeah. And so the idea of if you go into a big event and part of your preparation for that event, if you expect you know a certain a certain metagame, is you are not only aware of like what the metagame is going to look like, or you have a, gra- a hold on what the metagame is going to look like, but you also have an idea of what that metagame looks like and what their preparation is against something like you. So if you are a reanimator player and you're going into an event and you're thinking to my, yourself, okay, I need, I, I expect Painter to show up in some number. I expect, uh, you know, ACAS to show up in some number, you know, Jeskai Control in some number. Knowing what th- the most updated version, the most likely version of cards that they have in their sideboard to combat your strategy is going to navigate how you determine what cards you're selecting and then how to navigate your game. If you think you're going to run into a lot of, you think, you know, mono black helm is going to show up and you need to be able to, you need to be prepared for enchantments. And then you also need to be prepared for like soul guide lantern and uh, things of that ilk. And so you're like, okay, I need to not only be prepared for enchantments, but I only also need to be prepared for artifacts. And as we mentioned before, like the downswing of endurance, like maybe I don't need to respect endurance as much. And therefore yeah. that might influence like so much of what, how you prepare now is informed by understanding the metagame at large, not in tournaments. It's all right? slice of time, it, yeah. It's slice of time, and, and and like part of part of your preparation isn't just like what the metagame is going to look like at an event. It's also what the collect the community collectively agrees upon at the time is the most optimized version of that thing. You know, similar in chess, it's like if if uh, the top players are going to go into the candidates tournament tournament to determine who's going to play in the world championship. Well, you know the players that are going to be at that tournament, right? Like it's an invitation only tournament, you know the players that are going to be there. Similar if you go to EU at a certain time uh in, in a certain point in the uh, legacy format, you can more or less determine what decks are likeliest to show up. Delver will show up. Urza Saga decks will show up. Some amount of Storm will show up. Like if you think if you parallel those ideas, somebody entering the candidates tournament is going to go, "Okay, I know 
these players all like to play this opening and they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're the most efficient in this opening. So not only do I need to know how they're going to advance with that opening, but I also need to know the best strategies to combat that opening if I'm playing both white and how to defend if I'm playing as black. And if you go into uh, Eternal Weekend or any other large event, you have to know what that metagame looks like and then also what those openings are most optimized to do on both the play and the draw. You can't just go into an event thinking like, yeah, these are the, I, I know the format. I know what their sideboards look like. You do need to know those things. But then you also, you also have to go, so, what's up? Uh, the, the play and the draw didn't exist during this book. I just remembered. <laughs> you, you oh, well, there you go. Cards. <laughs> but, but, but like, um, I, the, the, but so, so one of the things that's like really important is like in this thing where they're saying, you know, collect data, you yeah. know, like play test your stuff is you have to have your plan both going in, knowing how you're supposed to uh, compete both on the plate and the draw. So it's a lot of prep work that goes in that doesn't may not get the same, you know, uh, time of day as like card selection. Maybe you have some amount of sideboard guiding on, like, OK, I'm on the play, I'm on the draw. But like, does that sideboard guide also include play patterns? How am I supposed to navigate with with being on the play on the draw? It's like, do you? But then, do you know that the Delver community is in agreement that yeah, you're supposed to board out Daisies on the draw against the deck that you're playing? Yeah. Because if you if you if you can go in knowing that, then that's going to give you, you an edge. Slam, not, you can slam cards you can slam. on the turn you need to. You know. Yeah. But then you know with also impunity. if. If you know that they're like, yeah, board out two dazes, then you can go, okay, when you're in the when you're in game, you're like, I can respect this half as much. Does that does that risk offset the reward of what I want to do this turn? You know? And you can navigate it that way. But that those are informed decisions because you did you did the homework you did the the, research, the prep yeah. time beforehand. You're right. You you gather data, right? Which is like what what this yeah. chapter is all about. So so B is calculate removal capability and importance of removal. I don't want to harp on this for too long, but I, I have highlighted a couple a couple lines here. Uh, the ability to remove opponents' cards is of very important varying importance in different decks. Uh, many times, a deck is vulnerable to certain enchantments, thus it is important that you rid your opponent of them. Uh, and then the first thing you must look at is whether or not your deck needs removal. Right? Uh, some decks don't. Uh, and then uh, finally, also weigh exactly how important. The destruction of each problem card is removal capacity should be function of necessity and susceptibility. So that that's interesting to me because what it's saying there is is not every deck needs to just run like you know swords of blast shares and lightning bolt and disenchant and you know like all the cards that that were out there at the time. Some decks just need lightning bolt and incinerate to to get the damage through. Some mm -hmm. decks uh, are just playing crusade. You know they're just they're not every every single deck. Uh, and, you know, the card they talk about here is is Blood Moon. Not every single deck cares about Blood Moon, so maybe you don't have to put Disenchants in your deck to, to worry about Blood Moon. Uh, but I think the, it's important, the idea of, like, calculating your removal capacity. There's also some, something, a good recent example of this is uh, in the Bowmaster metagame, the, uh, a card that's been getting a little bit more heat is Fire Ice. Uh, now, I personally don't think that Fire Ice is the way to go, but I've, I do know that like the conversation is about Fire Ice being a flexible spell in that like uh, being being able to tap down a permanent to like maybe offset like, you know, you turn off somebody's Power Blast for a turn and then you can sneak something through like that's not uh, dead. It can also just like blank a combat by tapping down their creature and drawing a card. So like, you know, you gain some time that way. But then the fire side of things is you can clean up a Bowmaster in one spell. Yeah. Right. So like you maintain parity is like rather than spending a source of plushers on one thing and then they still have the body left over. You're actually spending two for two and you're cleaning up uh, two for two. 
Now, I don't, I don't think that that's the, the optimal line because I think Fire Ice is just in, an underpowered card by comparison. And when you're playing underpowered stuff to deal with like the thing that your opponent's doing, then you still have to rely on them to have made the action before you can make the action. So I personally don't think it's great. But it is uh, in, a, in a vein of what you were just mentioning that the book says, like, what kind of removal do you actually need? And in, in this regard, it's like, well, I need specifically something that can deal with Bowmasters that, isn't otherwise, that is still otherwise playable. And Fire Ice gets a nice nod at that because it means that if you're playing against, you know, something like Storm, that where the removal, you're, you know, your, your source of postures is otherwise going to be blank, that it's like, oh, well, no, I also have this ice that maybe can, you know, mess up their combo turn if they're not expecting it. And so, like, there's some value to be gained there. It's the, it's the least dead. It's yeah. the least objection, objectionable option, right? But in a similar vein, it's also why Prismatic Ending, you know, got the nod right out the gate when it's like figuring out what is the most valuable, uh, what do I actually have to care about? Prismatic Ending be able to hit everything except lands was a big deal, right? Like, I want to be able to hit both my opponent's Dragon Rage Channeler and a different opponent's Carpet of Flowers. Yeah. And having a, a spell at one mana that can do both is really, it, that, that's a really valuable tool. But then as the format evolves... And it's like, oh, well, now there's way more Teferi Minsk One Ring in the format. And uh, Prismatic Ending really sucks at that. Do I need to shift over and play more something closer to the Lightning Bolt? And then, you know, I have to now concede the fact that it doesn't hit the uh, Carpet of Flowers the way I want it to. Or it doesn't hit the big construct anymore. You know, like those those are the trade-offs of analyzing. But that again, that comes into... You have to know the format and what you're trying to exactly. accomplish. That all comes back to the prep work. It comes to collecting the data and recognizing I am more likely to sit down and I'm, and face a large construct this percentage of the time. I'm more likely to face, you know, Teferi and Minskin Boot this percentage of the time and let those data points really inform your decisions as to how you're going to build your deck and when you're choosing your removal slots. Yeah. All right. So uh, I don't want to spend too much time in, on the A. It's calculate mana distribution. A lot of this information is going to be irrelevant now because mana distribution is completely different now. But I did want to read the spots that I highlighted real fast. Uh, first, look at how many cards there are that require each type of mana, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, your pips, as it were. Then look how many colored mana of each... So look at how many colored mana of each of these cards cost to cast. So it's sort of the same thing, but it's saying, like, you have X blue cards, X red cards, and then you have X pips, you know? Uh, but days doesn't matter in that pit because it's free. Exactly. But, Stuff like that but, like, like, doesn't get factored in. But then when you're looking at Uro, you have to look at Uro as a double green card. Yeah. And then it says factor the importance of of the cards of each color. So, you know, if you're not going to cast a spell until the end of the game, you know, then you don't need it in the early game, right? Like, you don't need that mana in the early game. Uh, again, a lot of this isn't as relevant because fetch lands exist and you can figure it out from there. You know, uh, a two, three, four, five color deck uh, has a lot less problems than, than it used to. You you want to know one one area where like that stuck out particularly to me in all of my uh, testing forever? Yeah. You want you, let, let's play a little game, Zach. What card do you think I hate more than most in the world? Blood Moon. Basic planes. Basic planes. Yeah, basic planes. I, hate, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. I hate <laughs> basic planes so goddamn much, Zach. Yeah. It, it it puts but me it further away from yeah. It puts me away from my Mystic Sanctuary. It puts me further away from my Counterbalance. It doesn't cast straight up Counter Spell. I hate Basic Planes so much. I do so much. So much of my life is spent trying to find ways to reasonably cut Basic Planes entirely from my deck. Yeah. I don't want it. I don't want it. But like what you just said about like is the card that you want to cast depending on the number of pits not going to be cast into the late game. And I have played so many decks where 
usually you want at least a number of basics equal to whatever your pip count is, knowing that you can reliably cast all of your spells off basics. Yeah. If you have a double blue spell and a single black spell in your deck, you need a swamp. For, you, you, you are like, I want a swamp and I want two basic islands, right? So at the very minimum, I can play all of the spells that I need to play off of basics. So that, like, yeah. if I get ruined somehow, I can still play the game. And one thing that I've done consistently is every time I had double planes in my uh, Miracles deck, I'm like, well, I need double planes because I need I want to be able to reliably cast and treat the angels. And you just draw an opener. Back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, you also needed double planes for things like Council's Judgment. There was more reasons to have double planes in your deck. Yes. Whereas, like, once it was just in treat because Prismatic Ending came in, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go down to one planes because if we get to the late stage of the game, I will, I will have one planes and then I can, you know, fetch up a Tundra and then I'll have my double plane suite for the turn that I want to be able to cast and treat. But I know that I'm exposing myself to potentially getting off, cut off of double white, which is really important because maybe you have island, island, planes fetch and you're like, I don't, I, I really can't afford to get a Tundra against an onboard wasteland. So what, what am I supposed to do now? <clears throat> These things come up a lot, but I don't know where I was going with this other than that that particular thing of like mana distribution and like you know yes for most deck it doesn't come up that often but it comes up a lot for me and yeah. that, that that really that that, <laughs> that particular line resonated with me because i'm like color deck yeah i was like this this particular chapter is 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 digging in on me hating basic planes but yeah. really wanting to support and treat the angels so the, the other the other lines i highlighted here are uh, a good way to determine how much of each to use is to make a proportion of color of card colors then alter it for other factors that is if there is one color that requires more colored mana than the other colors shift mana from the other colors to that one so that's kind of what you were talking about there and then uh mixed lands can make this process easier mixed lands love mixed love mixed lands <laughs> sure uh, do love mixed lands but the blood moon card makes us dangerous it is generally not a good idea to solely rely on mixed lands which is what you were talking about uh and uh, uh, you will generally have to work with your deck uh, for some time to achieve the best mana distribution. So it's, it's, you know, you're still doing it. What seven years later? You know, the, well that that concept also goes back to the uh, notion that we've talked about before, which is you know you never want to be in the middle on something. You either want to dodge it completely or overload it. Yeah. And so if you look at like four color decks now. I mean, most of them play a Life of Malone somewhere in their 60 or maybe a Life of Malone or two if they're playing Yorion. But they are just off of basics entirely because the, the idea is like, okay, well, we're just going to overload the Wasteland as opposed to yeah. be somewhere in the middle. Because if you go, okay, I'm going to get Island Plains and then fetch up a, a duel and then they can cut you off a of color as opposed to you being like, okay, I'm just going to go mono duels. I'm going to be softer to something like Blood Moon, but I'll be a little bit more insulated against Wasteland because Wasteland won't be able to cut me off entirely if I play... Uh, only basics plus a duel it's it, you know every blue white player that's listening to me has been in this scenario where they're like i'm supposed to have a really clean mana base wasteland's not supposed to fuck with me and then you fetch island island uh planes tundra and they hit the tundra and then all of a sudden you're mana screwed and you're like i can't yeah. believe it. how is this how happening? is this happening how yep. is this reasonable and it's because that it, that that particular scenario plays in the middle ground as opposed to either i'm going to fully respect wasteland and be pretty much entirely on basics but then also have my mana distribution be reliable on that yeah. uh spread of basic lands or I'm just going to completely disrespect it entirely and overload it. And that's what four color does, which is I'm going to respect it in the form of uh, life on the loan, but otherwise no basics. Yeah. All right. So the final, the final note on this, on, on that part of the chapter, uh, these questions. So it, you, 
basically asking a lot of questions about uh, about the effectiveness of the five of the five decks in the battle box. Uh, and then it says these questions must not strictly come out in your benefit. But if the answers are all bad for one kind of deck, it's generally a good idea to analyze your deck more thoroughly. So uh, that that's interesting. It's obviously smart. Uh, but there are times when we're just like, you know what? I'm a dog to this deck, and that's fine. I'm just gonna like move on. Like if I lose to Grixis Delver, I'm just gonna hope that I dodge it for like enough, like for you know eight out of the ten matches I play, right? And maybe I'll I'll get one in. You know, like you Dude, don't I'm, have I'm, to I'm, always be good against every deck. I'm the miracles player, bro. I'm never going to beat Cloud Post. Yeah, exactly. Never beating it. Zero zero percent against that deck forever. <laughs> Yeah. Unless they give me a tool that I otherwise want to be able to beat that deck, I'm never going to beat yeah. that deck. And my plan not, against not that deck going into because you can't back you can't back to the basics those decks either, right? And even then, back to basics is like okay, that's like you're one out. But now they have besage you. Like yeah. who even knows if that would be even reasonable anymore, right? Yeah. But like if I go into a big event, my if somebody was like Phil, what's your plan against Cloudpost? Dodge. Yeah. Dodge. Uh, okay, so then we go to uh, Roman numeral five. Identify weaknesses. Uh, so, uh, I've got highlighted here, almost all decks contain at least one of the five elements that are reflected in the five basic decks. And thus, you should be able to assess where your deck is weak by this point. Additionally, there are other things to consider. You should determine whether you need to be able to draw more cards, deal more damage, or develop more quickly. Uh, finally, uh, the worst thing that can happen, uh, uh, oh, you should essentially look at your deck and decide the worst thing that can happen to it, and then... Look for a way to deal with that deficiency. I wrote in the margins here, don't obsess. You don't have to like make sure that like, I think in, it was more important back in the day to, to figure out the answers to these problems because deck, deck construction was a little less defined. But I think now it's not as, it's not as big a deal. Like it, if I uh, lose to uh, artifact hate and when I'm playing an artifact deck, I can't obsess over that too much. Like I just have to nod that like, yes, Meltdown is bad for me, and I have ways to deal with Meltdown as far as counterspells are concerned. But if one gets resolved, that's game over for me. I just have to live live with that and, and move on. I can't spend 15 cards of my sideboard trying to figure out uh, what, how to get around Meltdown, you know? It's choosing, being okay of understanding what you're going to lose to, right? Like, if you're playing, if you go into four, if you go into an event and you're playing four color, you're going to go, yeah, I'm going to be soft to Red Stompy playing Blood Moon and Magus of the Moon. I'm yeah. like, I am, if I'm not playing Lightning Bolt or something like that specifically to counteract uh, Magus of the Moon, it's like, yeah, okay, like, we we are choosing to be soft to that particular thing that we hope we don't run in against. Yeah. Th that that particular line of like, you know, recognizing something and if you, if you are weak in a particular area and then shoring it up. I mean, man, if that wasn't just a direct flashback for me to the the episode where we were talking about how the entire format has sped up their development and if you are not doing also something to speed through your development, you're just going to be on the back foot. Uh, for the majority of the games that you play in this format, right? Well, like, your deck's in that, what we that, like to call a rebuilding year at this point, you know? Like, you, we're, we're figuring out what, what the next steps are for it. But, yeah, that that particular thing where it was where it was like, you know, or do you need to develop faster? Was that the line that you, like, yeah, was mentioned, it, like, verbatim? Yeah, it was, it was uh, or develop more quickly. Or develop more quickly, yeah. like that. That that is from what nineteen ninety, yeah. whatever nineteen ninety six or whatever. Just, you and it clicked something in, in you, you know. It it, it was relevant. Yeah. It was directly relevant to today's standards. But now I get that the context is different. But they were like, you know, back then they're thinking, yeah, you need to be able to develop by like turn four, turn five, yeah. you know. Where it's like now, it's like I, you need to be able to develop on turn one, yeah. you know. 
but like if if you're not capable of doing that in a meaningful way it's like okay how do you assess right yeah. and but like that that's looking at the format at a at a macro level right like what are all the decks doing uh, accordingly to to match up to either speed the format up or slow it down you know and it's and the the prime examples now it's like okay well if everybody can put 18 power into play by you know attacking by turn 2 then you have to be able to develop faster right if storm can kill you faster you have to be able to develop faster Four color gets delighted halfling. Ancient tomb gets to do it by itself. Uh, you know the, the, uh, the lands decks have played mox diamond and exploration forever, right? But like that in in formats where that's not the case, you know back uh, during top era miracles when you knew that you were going to run into senses divining top counterbalance and the games were going to go longer, development slowed. Right. And you you chose options that you knew you were going to be able to execute on a little bit better. Hence, you know, uh, a bunch of decks got to play abrupt decay, knowing that they may not be able to cast it on turn two, and that's okay because you knew that the game is going to go long enough that you go, I can establish uh, fighting over a counterbalance with an abrupt decay at some point in the game. And then that will, that will usually be good enough, but that's the form. The, the format is slower. Whereas, you know, nowadays the format's way faster and you have to be able to develop faster. And like this chapter hits it yeah. 30 years later. Yep. All right. So uh, on to number six, uh, number six, Roman numeral six is assemble a deck and play against the five basic decks. They kind of already, they kind of already mentioned that. Uh, yeah. it's weird to, to go over it again, but I, I so the pr- C was calculate effectiveness and then, and then six is actually do it. So we're not going to spend too much time on that, but I did want to read the projects that I highlighted. Uh, very often it will be the case that your deck will behave in ways that you did not expect. I think that's a mm-hmm. huge, a huge point to make. Uh, more often it will simply lead to you finding more problems, which, uh, must be rectified in your design. Uh, and then the testing process is also an excellent time to discover the best ways to use your deck. So I think a lot of times, especially, you know, when you pick up a brand new deck, you don't really know it until you sit down and you play it against another deck, right? You, you And I think that's that's what they're getting at here. Uh, for me, playing 8-cast the first couple of times, I was trying to play it like I was a Delver deck, uh, mm-hmm. being sort of reactionary. And then once I figured out, like, oh, this is what my priorities are for this deck, this is what I need to do, I was like, oh, this is a completely different style of deck, so I need to play it as such, you know? And I think that, that that's a, a good example of what they're talking about there. Yeah, you the, the, the recent example, I mean, I've been, I test a lot of uh, cards that on paper look like absolute dog shit if you don't know <laughs> what the idea behind the cards are. There, when when your, your uh, uh, suggestion there just made me think of back when I was thinking, okay, I want a proactive three drop for counterbalance in one of my builds for Miracles. And a car that I was, I was just, te- I was literally at this point in, 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 in testing, I was throwing shit at the wall. I was like, I'm not embarrassed to try anything. I'll try anything that, that in theory is good, even if the power level is low and I'll test it and see how it goes. You're talk we'll about just see, we'll, we'll, we'll see how I play. And I played Dreamcash, <laughs> yeah. right? So I, I remember I played Dreamcash and then I came back onto the episode and I told you guys, I told you and Nate, I was like, yo, Dreamcash. I was like, this is a proactive uh, way to get a card into my graveyard as a three drop of counterbalance in Mystic Sanctuary. I'm like, this is, this is going to be it. This is the way to go. Uh, and yes, the card was underpowered, but going in, I was like, this is a proactive three drop. The reason that I played it was that it's a proactive three drop for counterbalance. Well, now you can play that, that instant speed divination. Well, <laughs> you can play the instant speed, but, but, but speaking of like, where they're like, you may learn different things than what you initially outset as like the idea behind, uh, a card or a strategy. What I learned from playing dream cash wasn't that like, oh, I, uh, this was a proactive three drop and that was valuable. That came up way less often than what it did of taking pressure off of brainstorms yeah, instead wanted, of my miracles. You wanted and eight I, brainstorms instead of, instead of four. Yeah. 
Right, but it, it, the <laughs> thing that I the, when I went in, I was thinking this is a proactive three drop for counterbalance. But when I came out, I went. What I really want is a way to grease the wheels without putting so much pressure on my brainstorms to both fix my hand and enable miracles. Yeah. And that wasn't directly uh, obvious to me as I was focused on something different. And then I recognized that it solved a different problem that helped me in a bunch of matchups that I was I I felt like I would have otherwise been really tight, like you know, un uncomfortably tight against. And well, that that you, know, you go. That leads right up to the, to the last uh, highlight is that this step into the design process is important for our t obtaining new ideas and discovering where your deck is weak in certain areas. Certain aspects of your deck, which will only be able to be understood by playing. I didn't understand the tension, the amount the of pressure that was on my brainstorms until I tried something that highlighted for me, oh, I'm doing this and then I don't need to spoil my brainstorm. And now I can use it as a, a way to convert a miracle as opposed to in, uh, setting up a miracle. Like that's really important for me to recognize. Yeah. And I wouldn't have done it had I not gone through the trials and tribulations of trying this off the beaten thing card that's obviously underpowered in today's format. Yeah. Right. But like now I, I know going in, I'm like, that led me to a whole, uh, you know, down the rabbit hole from Dreamcast. I was like, I moved over to Merchant Scroll and then I tried Merchant Scroll because I was like, well, Merchant Scroll can just get Brainstorm. And then that's also three mana the way that Dreamcast was. Yep. That was also not great. But I never would have gotten to Merchant Scroll for Brainstorm and then a bunch of other things had I not gone through Dreamcast and et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they, they, they nailed it 30 years ago. Yeah. All right. On to number seven. Uh, remove unnecessary cards and make appropriate modifications and enhancements. Uh, so uh, th that's sort of obvious and part of part of uh, the previous thing. But I think I think uh, important to to read the highlighted parts here. Uh, one important revision note during the process is the extraneous card, the card that you're like, I, I have too many of these in my hand. Cards sitting in your hand are also a sign that you have too many cards that perform the same function in your deck. Uh, there is a card that performs this function, same function, only more effectively. You got to ask yourself that question, right? Is do so one? Am I playing? So in your scenario, you wanted more brainstorms. So obviously, you, they were never sitting in your hand. But in a situation where, like, maybe you're trying to kill all the creatures on the board, and you have four path exiles and four uh, four swords plowshares, and you're like, that's too many, you know. I'm always sitting here with like a sorts of plowshares in my hand when I need to be killing my opponent. That's that you know those are the, those are the sort of areas that that they're looking to to talk to you about there. Dude, you you know like in 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 my world currently, I I feel like the correct number is like two point four dress downs. Yeah, I know I want more than two, but I know I don't want three. Yeah, like that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's you know what I mean. It's funny, like uh, thinking about those those scenarios now when they're like, "What's the extra card in your deck?" Because it's so hard to figure out what the extra card is. Because a card like Dress Down, let's say Dress Down's totally useless in this matchup, you can cycle it. You know, you can you can play it and draw a card for it, right? And and so you don't have the same metric of of saying like, "Oh, this card's always just stuck in my hand. I need to get rid of it." But there might be a scenario where you have you've you've cycled your third dress down in a game and you're like you know i'm seeing this card and i don't ever find a use for it uh but i'm just using it to draw like another card you know so in that scenario you're like yeah council's liberation would be better than this at the very least you know that that sort of stuff so i think i think it's interesting that uh the the way we have to look at the heuristics of of how we decide that the card is extra in our deck now aside from just being like it's stuck in my hand because every card draws a card almost at this point yeah, I mean, in that regard too, it's also a nod to uh, how disciplined you can be in your 
card choices. Yeah. Because I mean, we've heard for you know the the, the common uh, idea for years and years and years is you're like, okay, well, in terms of opportunity cost, whatever, it's it pitches to force will. Yeah. You know. And it's like, that's not actually a reason yeah, to have a card in your deck, yeah. right? Like, you know, it's like, it, it's like, oh yeah, you can just cycle it for two mana, but like, you may not have two mana, like two mana might be a lot. Yeah. Two mana might be something that you don't have the luxury to use, uh, you know, in, in a given time. Yeah. But like, you know, being able to understand not only like, it, it, I think that that's part of where they were like, if a card is stuck in your hand, I think that like, if we were to extrapolate that 30 years later, I think what that also means is opportunity cost. Yes, exactly. And, like, like minimizing the, the 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 opportunity cost is done through things like okay, well, you can cycle it; it can't trips. Uh, oh, it pushes the force of will. Like there are other you, there are other fail cases for it if it's not doing what it's in the deck to do. Uh, but like, for, not every card can do that. And so, like you know, in the instance where you're like, yeah, I keep finding that I'm sitting with a source of plasters in my hand. This is not what I need. Like this is bad. I'm re- now I'm relying on my cantrips or whatever to solve that problem. Whereas something like Dressdown, it's like yes, I can cantrip for it. But like the opportunity cost of it being something else in your deck that is actually something you do want, as opposed to just the fail rate, is uh, I think where we are in current day. Yeah. As opposed to back then, where it's like yes, this card is sitting in my hand. That's a problem. But really, it's also I want to minimize the opportunity cost and max. Or in other words, I want to maximize every card in my deck. Yeah. All right. So there are three more. Uh, three more like parts. Uh, we really own, but really only one because we're not going to talk about uh, eight, which is assemble your sideboard, because we're going to go over that in chapter ten when they talk about uh, the sideboard. Uh, so let's go to nine, which is record your changes. Again, you know, like I said, uh, for Moxfield, we do this, uh, and often uh, we what what I put in the margins here is often. Uh, so it says record your deck and see modifications. Then go back to the four step, recalculating your mana base. And I said, often we forget about this. Often we forget to recalculate our mana base when we remove a bunch of cards from our deck and add new cards, especially if they're different colors and have different mana costs and stuff. Is to is to go back and reevaluate our mana base after we've after we've made modifications. I think that all too often we forget to we forget to do that because mana is all again so close to almost perfect so many times that you just assume that like yeah it's still good. But I think that that's a really important step is recalculating your mana distribution. Shout out to the epicstorm.com. I think that the deck that I hear most about analyzing your mana base in, uh, in conjunction with new card choices is Epic Storm. The, 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 the combination of like, okay, yeah, we're playing this. Therefore, Underground Sea and Taiga are our two best lands. We want to pair those versus, you know, pairing uh, Badlands and Tropical Island. Like those are the best pairs. Like not only do you calibrate your mana distribution and, you know, how much of each kind of mana you should have which then could influence your fetch land choice uh but also thinking okay what are the for the spells in my deck what are the best kind of duels to pair with each other yeah you know like if you are uh right is amazing at that by the way he talks about that at the beginning almost at the beginning of every single uh deck tech he does uh, on 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 the channel definitely check that out um because yeah he'll, he'll he'll be like yeah this is the time where like Okay, we've changed the build of the deck. We're removing Gavanic Relay. We're adding in uh, what's the card they just unbanned? Uh, just forgot. Mind's yeah, Desire. Yeah, we're yeah. adding in Mind's Desire, so that changes the mana base a little bit. And and like that, 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 it is. It is exactly what you're saying. He goes in and he's like, "Okay, Badlands is out. Tiger's in." You know, like I think that that's a really important and, and interesting uh, thing. That I, I I honestly just glossed over when I watched the videos, but now like it makes a lot more sense. 
And it's because the margins on Storm are really narrow, right? Yes. Like you can't, you can't, you can't fuck up because it'll be unforgiving. But like similarly, it's like if in Storm, it's like okay, we're playing white instead of green because we want prismatic ending instead of abrupt decay out of the board. That changes how we're supposed to. That that should change our fetch sequencing because when we bring in prismatic ending, we want to ensure that our plateau is paired with our, you know, I don't know, with our underground C to ensure that like we have access to all of our colors, but then also can then split and pair whatever spell you're casting. Like that type of thing is important to know because if you know that you're bottlenecked into having to get the underground C on turn one, then you're like, okay, well, I know that underground C should be paired optimally with Taiga. Is there a line that I can get to make ensure that like that is how I lay out my mana so that I can convert my spells on time without wasting any of it? Yeah. And knowing that going in is, is you're right. It's like, it's very rare that like, for the most part, fetch lands will solve that. Like yeah. if you're playing Grixis Delver, it's usually like what uh, four four three three. We want to be. You know? We want to. We want that like 07 percent to be in our favor, right? Like so. That's the thing that I think we need to. We uh, that doing that stuff every time you can shave a point here or there, a point of uh, of of uh, variance away here or there. Uh, that's a point in your favor, right? And so uh, over the course of of a tournament. Uh, you know, you draw an opening hand at least what? It, it, let's say you're playing a 10-round tournament at least 20 times, at least 20 times, right? So if we think about that, that you know, 0.7%, right? Uh, every time we every time we look at a hand, that's that's one, that, what, 5%? So one of those times, you know, you're going to end up in a situation where you're like, God, if I had just put the right land in my deck, I would have been better off and I would have won that game. You know, so I think I think it behooves us to think about those things and think about shaving those percentage points in our in our favor. You know, dude, that's something that also just uh, aside from uh, tests, but also just actual, you know, ANT or I guess, you know, what what storm what what the not exactly test version of storm would look like now with Beseech coming out and seeing the, the storm community practicing with uh vault of whispers yeah i was gonna say vault of whispers out, uh seemed like a card that, that would be smart in that deck but it's funny that right, you mentioned like, that now but like the offset of vault of whispers like yes it, it's something that you can you know convert off of your beseech to bargain to like do what you want also exposes you to wasteland and having to figure out like are we in more posi- are in in when you're collecting your data you're like are are we in more positions where this vault of whispers is a liability or a payoff yeah and if you're finding more often than not that you're like man the vault of whispers would be really nice but we keep just, it, it ends up higher percentages of the time getting wasted than bargained. Yeah. Then you're like, okay, well, if we're not bargaining it more than it's getting wasted, then it shouldn't be in the deck, even if in theory, it seems like it's really good. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you got to go through the strides of like, the theory is Vault of Whispers would be great to bargain. And we already want this, ba- we are, we were, we're playing a basic swamp before. Maybe we can just change that and up the power, the consistency of our Beseech. But then you're like, well, we're getting wasted 86% of yeah. the time. So like, it's way worse actually. It's and shouldn't be in the deck, bad, you know? Yeah. Uh, so th- two final points for this for this section. Uh, a deck is never complete. I think we w- I think that is uh, a common factor with us. Anyhow, we we always know that. Uh, and then additionally, each new set of cards. So this was th- this was Ice Age. So they were talking about like oh maybe alliances will come out soon. Each new set of cards offers you possibilities for your deck that could lead to new changes, which I think is especially for this era. It was probably even more prevalent then because, uh, you know, say what you will about power creep and whatever and how the, the power creep was much lower then. But like every new set of cards was drastically more impactful to the game in, in uh, 30 years ago than it is than it is now. Uh, and then and then finally, uh, step X 
return to step four. Uh, return to step. Yeah, step four. Step four was perform analysis. So, uh, and you just keep doing that over and over again. That's the end of the chapter. Uh, but Phil, Phil, do you have anything to say about the deck is never complete? I think the repeating to go, like going back and repeating from step four is the thing that keeps everybody involved in the game for as long as they do. Yeah. You know, the, the, I, I think more, more often than anything else, we go back to step four. Yeah. You know, perform analysis. That, that, the, yeah. The, 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 We're doing it when right you're now, not, right? <laughs> when you're not in game, the thing you do more than anything else is return to step four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, th so that does it for chapter two of Deep Magic. This has been at the Boomer Magic Book Club, and we will see you next week. Here's that playlist for chapter one. Subscribe to the channel, like, give this video all the love. Thanks so much.